0: Could I be someone who is like what we speak about and hear about and uh, read about in our passage this morning? And then, lastly, in verse 11, 10 and 11, do I know him? So let's read our passage together. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen. This is our portion this morning that we'll look at. Rejoice in the Lord, brothers and sisters. This is how he starts this chapter. Why rejoice? Rejoice because it is God who works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's from chapter 2, verse 13, which creates a lovely segue into our passage here today. And this righteousness that Paul speaks of comes through the saving faith of Christ and not our own righteousness. It's an act of God's grace. And that's the big picture for us this morning. So let's look at the warning put no confidence in the flesh. So James, what does circumcision have to do with me today, right? This portion of scripture was for the people of Philippi. Uh, Not me. Well, let me explain. But before we dissect what Paul is meaning here about circumcision, we need to go back to the book of Acts chapter 15. That will help us understand what Paul is facing here. And this chapter opens with Paul and Barnabas Debating with these men who we understand to be Judaizers. Let's read it. Acts chapter 15, starting at verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Now you could see them wagging their fingers, right? Unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them... all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. You could almost see him trying to calm the crowd, right? Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And so from this account in the book of Acts, we know that there was false teaching being spread. And today we would call it misinformation, right? The Pharisaic wing of the church was spreading this false teaching. And it was such a strong argument that Paul and Barnabas got into. They reacted in fierce protest to this claim. The Apostle Paul was never one to shy away, right, from a good theological debate. But thankfully, they did the right thing, and they went to the church elders in Jerusalem for some wise counsel. For Jewish believers, you see, circumcision was an act instituted by God in the book of Genesis, It was a sign of God's covenant between Abraham and his offspring. And and you can read about this in in Genesis chapter 17, verse 9 to 11. So this practice was a, a deeply held belief that went back generations. After hearing the Pharisees speak, Peter, in his wisdom, got up to address the crowd and he told the audience that Gentile believers have had their hearts cleansed by faith because of the Holy Spirit now indwelling in their hearts. The heavy yoke of circumcision and the law has been unbearable to carry. And Peter admits in verse 10 that their forefathers have been unable to bear the burden of the law any longer. And I'm thankful for the truth and promise that we read in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 and 9 which says, for by grace, brothers and sisters, John Tabar says that all the time, by grace, right, John? It's by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Amen, brothers and sisters. So that no one may boast. And this one statement from the Apostle Paul, it totally destroys the Judaizers' claim. Brothers and sisters, if in my life I'm boasting in my good works to try to achieve good standing with God, I'm practicing a form of modern-day circumcision, an outward act of religion that cannot save me. There's only one good work that takes the sinner to heaven, and that's the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Amen, brothers and sisters, and his resurrection. Paul had reason to boast and have confidence in the flesh. He ticked off all the boxes right in his gain column. My fleshly gains are lost. In verses 7 and 9, 7 to 9, Paul, he now recounts to the church in Philippi his personal testimony, providing some impressive credentials, humanly speaking, he details his Jewish heritage, right? Jewish boys circumcised on the eighth day from the elite tribe of Benjamin. That's King Saul's tribe. And as a side note, in speaking of Benjamin, he is described in Genesis chapter 49, verse 27, as being like a ravenous wolf, and his descendants would be aggressive warriors. And before his conversion Saul ravishly, right? He ravaged the church too, dragging Christians off to prison because of the fiery defense and adherence to the law. In his own righteous eyes, he was blameless. But after meeting Christ on the road to Damascus and experiencing a total transformation of his heart, right? Paul becomes a warrior for Christ who is entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised the Gentiles that's that's you and I brothers and sisters what a transformation in verse 7 Paul declares that the gains he's made because of his religious status are a big loss he goes as far as saying and you see on the slide That everything he had going for himself is insignificant. It's like dog dung. It's rubbish in good English. The message translation says he's dumped it all in the trash so that he can embrace Christ and be embraced by him. And in our own lives, any gains we make in this world, whether they be power, money, or pleasure, if we live for ourselves, ignore the cross follow the world, save our lives for our own sake and gain the world. Scripture says that we'll lose our soul and ultimately lose God's reward and glory. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 to 26, if anyone, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? In verse 9, Paul says, Our righteousness doesn't come from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. What else does Paul have to say? About works in Galatians chapter 2 and in Romans you see here on the screen we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified And Romans 3.20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In his book, The Grace Awakening, by Charles Swindoll, many of you know him and have books of his in your libraries, he states, and I quote, When grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ, A long-awaited revolution of the heart began to set the religious captives free. Fearful bondage motivated by guilt was replaced with a fresh motivation to follow him in truth, simply out of deep devotion and delight. Rather than focusing on the accomplishments of the flesh, he spoke of the heart. Instead of demanding that the sinner fulfill a long list of requirements, he emphasized faith if only the size of a mustard seed. Now, James, we don't have any Judaizers here at RBC. Come on, get with the 21st century, right? No one's going around telling me to get circumcised, right? But, you know, if you've come out of a works-based religion, you must reject the idea that good works will help save me. It's a hard thing to shake off if you're still motivated by guilt. The prophet Isaiah says in chapter 64, verse 6, that that our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. So we must understand that any attempt to gain acceptance or forgiveness from God through our own works or merits is legalism, and not through the grace of God. Right? So that we can gain a better understanding this morning of this belief And dangerous belief, that is. I'd like to share some practical information with us this morning. So if someone here is struggling in the area of legalism and self-righteousness, okay? And I stand before you. This was something I struggled with. I'd like to share this next slide. Am I a modern-day Judaizer? And so I took this, an article that was written by Stephen Altrog entitled, I'm a legalist. (laughs) Five signs I might be a legalist, okay? So let's look at this together. Okay. So, a legalistic person is angry when others get grace. Matthew chapter 20, verse 116. You remember the story Jesus told of the workers in the vineyard. Some worked all day busting their backs in the hot sun after being told they would receive a day's wages. Others worked half a day, some worked a quarter day, and only a few worked an hour. At the end of the day, they all received the same wages. The men who worked all day were seriously ticked off, right? Now, when those first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received just the denarius. And verse 11 says, And on receiving it, they grumbled. Right? They grumbled at the master of the house, but he replied, I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Right? The thief on the cross. Right? Think about him. Legalism has no room for God blessing a person when they don't deserve it. Number two, a legalistic person constantly evaluates whether they're getting a fair shake. Right? The prodigal son. We know the story well. Luke chapter 15, verse 11 to 32. After the prodigal son came home, what did his father do? He threw a massive party in celebration. Yes, he's come home, right? A fattened calf was slaughtered. Everyone danced for him. He gave him a ring. Everyone was ecstatic but his older brother, right? Typical legalistic firstborn. (laughs) He grumbled at his father, look. These many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. So when we're legalistic Christians, we weigh our disobedience against our blessings and come to the conclusion that my obedience outweighs what I've received. Number three, a legalistic person constantly compares themselves to others. Very dangerous, right? We see men in ministry that have fallen recently, right? Don't look at others. Luke 18, verse 9 to 14 says, Jesus told the story of a legalistic Pharisee and a wicked tax collector who came into the temple. And the Pharisee stood loud and proud before God and prayed, God, I thank you. <laughs> I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give tithes of all that I get. Hey, it's not exactly a prayer as much as it is a proclamation. The Pharisee looked at the tax collector and felt this, this cold, moral shudder ooh, go down his spine, Right? as he passionately thanked God that he was not like this godless scumbag. But when I compare my moral achievements to someone else, and then get satisfaction from the difference, that's legalism. I'm basically saying, God, thank you that I'm more righteous than that person. Number four, a legalistic person lacks joy. I experienced this myself. It's impossible to be legalistic and joyful at the same time. I could not believe the Judaizers or the Pharisees were very joyful people to hang around with. Joy comes from knowing that our sins are forgiven, amen? Misery comes from trying to earn forgiveness from God. With the gospel comes freedom and with the freedom that we have comes great joy. But being legalistic, a legalistic Christian, and joy simply don't mix. Psalm 32 verse 1 says, and David wrote, Blessed blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Legalism is the thief of joy. Instead of focusing on the finished work of Christ, the legalistic person constantly focuses on what he or she must do to earn salvation. Number five, a legalistic person feels like God is never happy with them. In Italian, we would say he has the baston ready to hit us over the head. Okay. <laughs> Charles, Des- Charles Spurgeon describes a legalistic person like this. The poor sinner trying to be saved by law is like a blind horse going round and round the mill and never getting a step further but only being whipped continually. The faster he goes, the more work he does, and the more he is tired. Do I know him? Do you know him today? Do you know him in a legalistic way? Do you feel like God is only angry with you? What did Paul do to defeat the legalistic mindset? He focused on Christ. Verses 10 and 11 say that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And Paul uses these action words in the last two verses to describe what a relationship is with Christ. Saving faith is a faith that must move us, brothers and sisters. If my faith in Christ hasn't changed me from darkness to light, I haven't been saved. Ouch. Well, what does 1 John chapter 1 say? Verses 6, 8, and 10 give us warnings with these words. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie... And do not practice the truth. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word, that's Jesus, is not in us. Hebrews eleven six says that it's without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith produces something in us that transforms a sinner like you and I who once rejected Christ, that now receives the gift of salvation by grace. And when God knocks on the door of our heart, he only has one question for us to answer. What will you do? What will I do with the gift of Jesus who died for you and I? If you will accept him as Savior, you're saved by faith. Do you know him today? Here's the good news. John shares the good news in verse 7 and 9 of this same portion of scripture. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. What a promise. With the gift of salvation also comes suffering, as Paul mentions in this verse. Am I ready to suffer for my faith in Christ? Or perhaps I'm suffering now, physically, emotionally, mentally. Know this, brothers and sisters. Hebrews 2:18 says, Because Christ has suffered when tempted. He is able to help us today who are being tempted. Call out to Him today in faith. Ultimately, our physical bodies that are wearing away and slowing down, Scripture says that the fulfillment of our salvation will be achieved through our resurrected bodies. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters, with these words from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It says, For since we believe, And the voice of an archangel and with the sound of a trumpet of God. Brothers and sisters, if this doesn't give you goosebumps, oh, wake up. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And we will always, always be with the Lord Therefore, encourage each other with these words, brothers and sisters. In the days we're living, we need to encourage these words to each other. This is not our final home. Our home is in heaven with God one day. In conclusion, this text this morning, the Apostle Paul has given us warnings. This warning to watch out for pitfalls of self-righteousness to avoid... Hold fast to Christ in faith, the head of the church. This morning, if you don't know him, God's will is for you to receive Christ. And if you know him today, my prayer is that we would maintain unity here at RBC and beyond these walls. Let's demonstrate grace with each other as God has so richly extended his grace towards us. Amen. This morning we sang a beautiful song, and I'll, I'll admit that, that I had never really sung it before, and I want us to sing this together. This song is in our hymnal, and it's entitled, My Hope is in the Lord. Let's sing it together. Let's stand together. Number 406. Number 406, My Hope is in the Lord. And verse 3 says, And now for me he stands before the Father's throne. He shows his wounded hands and names me as his own. Oh, brothers and sisters, if it doesn't warm our hearts today, God, let's sing it with all our hearts. Amen.
1: anger to suppress, my only hope is found in Jesus' righteousness. He died for me, he lives and everlasting life and life.
0: Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your grace this day. For your grace, God, for your faithfulness each morning. God, that we have breath. Thank you, God, that we could stand here this day and proclaim you, Lord of our lives. And Lord, I pray for those that may be uncertain of where they stand with you. God, I pray, just as that thief on the cross... Lord was in need of you. I pray that in faith they would believe that and that they would proclaim you as king. Lord, forgive us when we fall short. We would repent, God, even now of our wrongdoing. We thank you for the blood of Christ that was spilt on our behalf, God, for this precious gift that we received. Lord, no good work. Lord, no external act could ever replace this gift of salvation. And so this day we declare and we say, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for this day that you have made, for this promise that we have. Lord, I pray that we would go from this place encouraged. Lord, that we would maintain unity amongst our brethren, amongst ourselves. Father, that even as we go out from these doors now, we pray for the the corn boil, the fellowship that we will have with each other. Lord, thank you for the food, and I pray your blessing on it this day. And Lord, I thank you for the volunteers and those that help prepare it. God, I pray that we would leave this day, that we would be a blessing to others as well. And God, we just thank you once again for this sunny day and this day that you have made in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Greet each other warmly.